Let me put a little plug in for our new members class here today. You don't have to be ready to sign on the dotted line about membership in the church. If you're just interested in getting some additional information, um, we try to keep those classes kind of small, around a dozen people, just so there's good personal interaction and you can ask questions. And so my concern in teaching it is not so much to complete information as much as it is to answer questions. And so today at 4, from 4 to 5.45, we're going to be in this room right outside here. I would love to be able to spend a couple hours with you this afternoon and uh, talk with you about church membership. Well, today, this morning, we're going to continue our series in Matthew 24. And I, I realize, I need to apologize to you, I realize I created a huge controversy last week by not explaining my title. People thought yeah, I was speaking in tongues or, um, you know, there was some kind of Native American language that I had learned. Um, what in the world? And so I even had somebody tell me that they goggled it this week, uh, trying to tell me that they Googled it to figure out what happened. <coughs> Donnie Fickling. And um, <laughs> we're talking about the end of the world as we know it from Jesus' perspective. Let me tell you one of the challenging things for me when it comes to the subject of eschatology. Let me just ask out of curiosity. I didn't ask this in the first service. I think I probably would have gotten a very different response. How many of you have a very definite opinion about how everything shapes out in the end? If you're not willing to raise your hand, then you don't have a definite opinion, okay? You know, you, you, you're you premillennial, you're postmillennial, you're amillennial, um, some of you might be like Gil Alda. You might be pan-millennial. Uh, Gil believes it's all going to pan out in the end. And so um, the challenge is everybody has an opinion when it comes to eschatology. And I think if you know me well at all, you know that I think that there is great value in systematic theology, trying to take all of the disparate parts of what the Bible says about any subject and trying to put it together to come up with a comprehensive answer. The problem is systematic theology can sometimes lead us astray by not allowing the scriptures to speak with full authority because now we've already formed our opinion and we're unwilling to listen to the word of God. Okay, you follow where I'm at? And so uh, I want you to know very explicitly, I am trying to keep systematic theology out of this and trying to allow Christ to speak explicitly from Matthew 24. And let's not worry about your favorite Christian fiction series, the Left Behind series, Let's not worry about the late great planet Earth. Let's not worry about 88 reasons Jesus is coming back in 1988. Let's allow the scripture to speak for itself. So here's my question for you. I don't know if you've ever taken a picture. Um, I asked Emmanuel Naconi this because he's a photographer. Um, if you've ever taken a picture and you've tried to like, get your, your family in the picture, but also this panoramic background, and then when you take the picture, you can't see your family. That ever happened to anybody? I remember uh, I first I got my first camera when I was in middle school, and it was one of those you know you, you know throwaway cameras. I thought it was the coolest thing. A throwaway camera. Anybody from, like? There's some people here you don't know what a throwaway camera is because like your camera has always been your phone. I mean that's just a weird thing for us that are over 30 years of age. Another cool thing we had we had a camera. You, you're not gonna believe this, okay? We had a camera that when you would snap a picture, it would spit the photo out automatically. And then, here's what's awesome about it. It's like, it's like if you use Crest, people will think you're more attractive. If you shake it, it makes you look better. You know, your, your picture makes you more attractive. I don't know if that actually helped to do anything to the picture, but how many of you were Polaroid picture shakers? Everybody did it. 
I remember we were out somewhere, I think it was a waterfall in the mountains, and um, I had my own camera, and so I wanted to take a picture of my family, but I wanted this beautiful panorama in the, in the background. So I had them step back, and I step back, and then when I took the picture, my family was like this big. And this is before you could do this to your pictures or do that to your pictures. It was terrible. I thought I was going to take a nice, beautiful family picture with this incredible backdrop, and I had gotten the perspective wrong. And so if you got out a microscope or a magnifying glass, you might be able to see, hey, you know, there's my mom, there's my dad, there's my sister, that's us. But you really couldn't. And in the same way, when we talk about eschatology and what Jesus is saying about the end times, last week what we talked about was the big picture. Jesus did not give a lot of specific details. He kind of framed in like the wide angle lens of of the end of the world. And he says it's going to be trouble. There's going to be deception. Well, what happens is we look at Matthew 24, verses 15 through 28. He does this. Boom. And now we get the close-up. Now we get to see more specifics. And really, there are two main issues that we're going to deal with that are building upon what we talked about last week. And we are going to get, number one, greater insight into the Great Tribulation. Number two, we're going to receive additional information regarding the great deception. These are two things that the Bible says very clearly as the end times continue to approach, these are things that will be realities that we have to deal with. Now, let me, let me say this and just ask for you to pray for me as I do my best to walk through this. Every commentary I read uh, in preparation this week said, congratulations, Matthew 24 is one of the top three most difficult passages to actually interpret, to figure out what it says. And so it does not take a rocket science to make a complex issue even more complex and misunderstandable. The job is to take something that's incredibly complex and try to make it something that is easy for us to understand. So uh, there, there, was, there were more hours spent in study this week trying to find a way to make something irreducibly complex, understandable and meaningful. And um, we'll figure out if I get anywhere close to it because there's a lot in here that's important. Last week, we looked at verses 4 through 14, where Jesus established the big frame of everything that was going to happen. And basically, it was the same warning that we get today, that there will be increasing trouble, tribulation, that we'll experience hardship, and that there will be deception. One of the things that's interesting about verses 4 through 14 is it is very generic, but even more explicitly, it is very non-Jewish. You look through verses 4 through 14, and it seems like it could apply to everyone. When we get to verses 15 through 20, that changes because it becomes very culturally and geographically precise. People in Judah or Judea flee to the mountains. You don't get much more locally specific than that. And so here's the thing that I would say on the outset that is helpful for us. With Left Behind books and movies and Kirk Cameron and whatever, we tend to think that apocalyptic stuff is for us, that it didn't have anything to do with the people that lived before us. Friends, listen, Jesus wanted to prepare his disciples. Apocalyptic is not, apocalyptic literature is not just for the future. Jesus wanted to do something to help his flesh and blood contemporaries too. So the challenge for us is to hop in our little time machine here while we're preaching and go back to the context in which Jesus was saying this and try to hear it how his disciples heard it and to see what was the immediate benefit and context in which they were hearing these things. And so in verses 15 through 20, Jesus begins to answer their questions. They said, 
all right, Lord, when is this going to happen? You talked about there's not going to be a stone left upon the temple. You said all this stuff is going to happen. When does it happen? Uh, as I've mentioned, we'll be in Matthew 24. The scriptures will be on the screen. If you want to open up the pew Bible in front of you, we'll be on page 701. And let's look at verses 15 through 20. Jesus says, So when you see the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place... Let the reader understand. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the housetop must not come down to get things out of his house. A man in the field must not go back to get his clothes. Woe to pregnant women and to nursing mothers in those days. Pray that your escape may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. He begins with, so when? The disciples' question was, when will this destruction of the temple take place? He begins to say exactly when it will happen. So when you see, insert a really difficult phrase to understand, the abomination that causes desolation, get ready to run. There's something that they can expect in the future that when they see it means they've got to get out of Dodge as quickly as possible. <clears throat> Jesus had just recently been in confrontation with the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. They had asked him some questions. And at the conclusion of that, uh, Matthew chapter 23, verse 38, just a chapter beforehand, <clears throat> Jesus says to the scribes and the Pharisees that he is leaving them their house desolate. Look back, uh, just a couple verses, Matthew 23, 38. See, your house is left to you desolate. Now he begins to explain exactly what that desolation is. He begins to zoom in. And he uses a phrase that's hard to understand, the abomination that causes desolation. That word abomination, specifically our interest in that word is in the book of Daniel. Because he says, as it was prophesied by the prophet Daniel. And then uh, Matthew kind of throws, if you've got a red letter version of the Bible, this is really interesting. Because all of Matthew, almost all of Matthew 24 is red letter. It's Jesus speaking. But Matthew interrupts Jesus when he is writing his gospel. Right in the middle of verse 15, do you see it there? He puts a parenthetical statement there. Let the reader understand. In Greek, that means y'all better study Daniel. It's important. You better figure out what Daniel is talking about here. And this phrase becomes really difficult because it becomes clear that one of the four references in Daniel is referring to something that has already happened historically, okay? So when we talk about the abomination that causes desolation, this is where we're going to get a little deep and we're going to wade into it a little bit. So give me five minutes and just see if you can hang with this as we try to explain this, because this will be hugely important for us as we learn how to interpret the Bible. When we talk about the abomination that causes desolation, there are really only three options. The first option, and the option that all of Jesus' contemporaries believed, was that in 167 B.C., uh, a, a military ruler by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes came in, captured Jerusalem, desecrated the temple, and he desecrated it by sacrificing pigs on the altar, which is not kosher. And then he even erected a, an altar to Zeus in the most holy place of the temple. And it even says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place. So if you would have asked a first century Jew, a contemporary of Jesus, what is the abomination that causes desolation? They would have said that happened 200 years ago. 
It happened during the Maccabean Revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes. And here's the thing that's interesting. Even though that was the widespread and commonplace assumption of the people, Jesus never corrects them. If they were wrong, Jesus doesn't tolerate a lot of error. He would have said, well, you know, I can understand how you see that. You have heard it said unto you, but I say unto you. He's kind of done that a couple times before. He kind of rolls with it in seeing some kind of historical fulfillment. It becomes really clear from the cultural and geographic specificity with which he addresses you in Judea flee to the mountains. Don't flee on a Sabbath. Hopefully it's not the winter. That it's very specific and it's referring to uh, Jerusalem. Luke 21.20 says that the desolation of Jerusalem will be near when you see it surrounded by armies. It is a blatant reference to what will happen in 70 AD. So you have Maccabean revolt is the abomination. 70 AD, the utter destruction of Jerusalem is the abomination. And yet we also know that Jerusalem plays a part not just in 167, not just in 70, at least figuratively and perhaps literally, it plays a role in the end times when Jesus returns. Okay, so three options. 167 BC, 70 AD, future end times when Christ returns. How do we make sense of this? What do we do? Well, at this point, I think it's very important for us to pay attention to how Jesus practices biblical interpretation because I think what he does for us is an example for how we should interpret this as well. For those of you that are uh, coming on Wednesday nights, we're going through a series um, on Wednesday nights on how to interpret the Bible. How do, we, how do we learn how to interpret it well? What is the difference between meaning and implication and application? And what are different schools of interpreting the Scripture? It's been very um, fruitful. It's been very good for us to talk about this. And we're dealing with an issue of interpretation right here. So here's the principle, and then let me try to explain it. What Jesus is doing here as an example is teaching us that prophecy can apply to more than one historical situation and can be read both backwards and forward. Prophecy can apply to more than one historical situation, and it can be read both backward and forward. Here's the best, all these hours of study, here's the best I can do for you. Jesus is, in in, in an interpretational fashion, working like a pivot. He does not correct his contemporaries in their assumption that 167 was an abomination that causes desolation. But he uses that historical setting to then say, as it has happened in the past, so it will happen in the future. So he is making the abomination that causes desolation have two references, a historical reference and a future reference. Why is that important for us? Because the minute you start talking about end times, you get all kinds of kooks with all kinds of theories and all kinds of charts and all kinds of graphs and all kinds of calendars and all kinds of star charts and all kinds of aliens visited the earth, all kinds of weirdness, that people start to come up with all of this stuff. And I think what Jesus is teaching us to do is to do exactly what he has done, is to see something that was an abomination that will lead to an even greater abomination. The destruction in 70 AD uh, was terrible. There were um, more Jews exterminated under Hitler, even more under Stalin, but there was never a culturally, ethnically, uh, ethnic um, capital that ever had a higher percentage of its people obliterated from the face of the earth in 70 AD. It was the worst 
holocaust of Jewish people because people were not spread out. If you were a Jew, you lived in the Holy Lands. There may have been Jews in other places, but that's where they were located. And so when that happened, it was terrible. And what Jesus is saying is that he's giving us permission to do the same thing. A lot of times when it comes to end times conversation, we either see all of the fulfillment in the past in the destruction of Jerusalem, or we see no fulfillment, it's all in the future. And I don't think that that's faithful. When Jesus says, hey, you and Judea, get ready to flee, go to the mountains, he's doing something to help his disciples to be ready for the adversity that is coming in their lifetime. But just as he has pivoted with the Daniel prophecy to the modern day from 167 AD, uh, 167 BC to 70 AD, he's telling us to do the same thing. We can see some fulfillment. Yes, there was not a rock standing upon each other in the temple, and that happened in 70 AD, but that becomes the prototype for what will happen again in the future. So you start to see a pattern of meaning. There was something terrible that for that people was the abomination that creates desolation but it became the foreshadowing, the prototype for what happened in 70 AD. And just as Jesus pivoted from the past to the future, we can do the same. So we see some fulfillment, some complete fulfillment. In what happened in 70 AD, there, was te- there were terrible things that happened, and it was an atro- atrocity that happened of a scale that we can't imagine. But we can use that, again, to pivot towards the future and say, 167 BC was bad. 70 AD was worse. What remains to happen in the future? I think that's huge. I think that's a really important interpretational principle because now we're not sticking our head in the sand and not seeing historical fulfillment. We are seeing both Jesus' words about the destruction of the temple coming true but we also see that there is yet a future fulfillment in this pattern of meaning that says, wow. Okay, it has proven true. Jesus' prophecy came true, but it hasn't yet come fully true because there's yet more meaning, there is more suffering to happen. Much that surrounds the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD is repeated on a larger scale when Christ returns. So here's the issue. Both for Jesus' disciples in his day and for us, there is meaning in this text that is important. Look at what he says to his disciples looking forward. They are warned specifically about the awfulness of the day, and they're issued three specific warnings. Number one, they are told to run from rooftop to rooftop. Do you see where it says that? A man on the housetop must not come down to get things out of his house. Now, if you ran from rooftop to rooftop in your subdivision, you would die. Um, because you have property and you are plotted and zoned. But if you've ever seen an ancient Near Eastern village, uh, there might be a room, room for people to walk single file between the buildings. And so it is possible to run rooftop to roof, rooftop, especially if you happen to be Jason Bourne. And so uh, that's really easy for him. But you see, even in contemporary um, cinema in Europe, there's just not this personal space that people have. The buildings are close to each other. And he's saying, guys, listen, when you see Luke 21:20, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that the desolation is near. When you see the troops starting to amass, don't count to 10 Mississippi. Don't think that there's going to be a rush count before bad things happen. Don't even go downstairs and um, get your gun, get your money, 
Uh, get your backpack, get your bug out bag. Don't get any of that. Just go because time is of the essence. Don't even come down. Just start running and get out of Dodge. Number two, he says, don't take, the, don't take anything except for the clothes on your back. Verse 18, a man in the field must not go back to get his clothes. They're not to assume that because Jerusalem is the holy city that God will somehow preserve it. And hey, let's run into the city, close the gates, and God will save it because God has already consigned it to destruction. Don't assume that God will not allow it to fall because he's already made the determination that it will. What is interesting in history, uh, this is reflective of about 33 AD. 40 years later, uh, Jerusalem is destroyed. History actually reports that that is exactly what the Jews did. This is Jerusalem, the city of God. It is Zion, the blessed city. When the armies came, the Jews ran into the city into a virtual bloodbath. But Eusebius, the Jewish historian, reports this. He says, on the other hand, <clears throat> the people of the Jerusalem church were commanded by an oracle given by revelation before the war to those in the city who were worthy of it to depart. Secular historian reports that when the army surrounded the cities, the Jews barricaded themselves in, the Christians fled, and that's why they were not wiped out in the Jerusalem church. That's not the Bible saying that. That's secular history. That they didn't go, they ran from rooftop to rooftop. They took the clothes on their back, and we are given examples of this. We don't like to talk about this example, but in Genesis... Abraham's nephew, Lot, is living among the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And God makes Abraham aware of his plans to destroy the city. And Abraham says, I know that they are wicked. If I can find 50 righteous people, will you spare the city? Can't find 50. Um, God, what about, what, what about 45? No, that's proven a little too difficult too. Um, 20? 15? 10? Only five? And there's not. There's one. And God says, Lot, you gotta go. Get your family and don't even look back. Don't stop at the rest stop. Don't fill up the tank. You go and you flee. Number three, specific instruction given to his disciples, preparing them for the disaster in 70 AD. He says, pray for the best conditions for this worst event. Pray for the best conditions for this worst event. He says, oh, woe to women who are pregnant and nursing. Pray that your escape may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. Why in winter or on Sabbath? Basically, what Jesus is saying is not to allow harsh conditions or sacred traditions to hinder your flight. If it's in the winter, that's the rainy season. So those streams and brooks become raging rivers. And when you are trying to navigate the slippery rocks of a river while you're cradling your baby, you can't even keep your own balance and trying to get across a river in full flood stage, Jesus says, I've got compassion for those who are pregnant and are nursing because it will be additionally hard for them. He says, pray that it doesn't happen on a Sabbath. Why? Because the gates are closed on the Sabbath. You want to get out of the city, you're going to have to go over the wall. You're not going to be able to go to Renamule because there ain't no working that's done on a Sabbath. You're stuck. And if you're conscientious and you go, oh goodness, 
There's an army out there, and it's the Sabbath. And the, the, the Pharisees say that we can only go 2,000 paces on a Sabbath without it being work, half a mile. Half a mile is not fleeing. It's not what Jesus is commanding. He says, pray that it doesn't happen in the winter or on a Sabbath. But yet there is instruction, not just for disciples in Jesus' day and age. There, there is meaning for us. There are implications for us as disciples looking forward, and it's this, that the destruction of Jerusalem inaugurated a time of increasing trouble. To be clear, <clears throat> I believe if we're going to allow Jesus to speak for himself and not impose outside influences, I think Jesus would say today, we are living in the uh, beginning stages of the tribulation. And it, it started in 70 AD and will continue until he returns. It's not all some future, but it may increase in intensity. It may uh, become overpowering in its influence, but it has started, and it started with the destruction of the Old Testament people of God in the city of Jerusalem. While the destruction of Jerusalem was especially violent, Jesus is teaching that tribulation, false teachers, natural disasters, persecutions, wars, and rumors of wars, forsaking of the faith, will characterize all of history. It existed back in the disciples' age. It has existed in every age of the church. And guess what? It exists right now. It's going to get worse. It's going to increase in its intensity. Our society will continue to lose any vestige of common sense that we still retain just a little bit of. But it's going to get worse. So in addition to telling us and warning us about the great tribulation, the one that the disciples would face in their time, and the one that we will increasingly face as we get one day closer every day to his return, he also seeks to warn us regarding what I've titled the great deception. The great deception in verses 21 through 28. Now look with me at verses 21 and 22. I think this starts a new section. And you'll hear why in a second. For at that time, there will be a great tribulation, the kind that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now and never will again. Unless those days were limited, no one would survive, but those days will be limited because of the elect. I think this is starting a new section, and I think this is where we see Jesus begin the pivot, where he is talking specifically about what will happen in 70 A.D., And he says, at that time, a great tribulation will arise that will not be like anything that has ever happened before that. Here's the issue. What happened to Jerusalem in 70 AD happened on such a specific and minute scale. It was huge for people who lived in Jerusalem, but on a global scale, it was really small. It was not World War I, where every nation, you know, almost all the nations of the world were engulfed in the controversy. It was very specific. It was deadly, and it was terrible, in that locale, but it didn't affect the rest of the world. So it's hard when he says that there's a tribulation that's going to happen. There's going to be the worst thing ever. It's hard for us to think about something that if we lived in America back in that day, it wouldn't even be on front page news because it didn't happen in our country. And so it's hard to see, and what Jesus says, this is going to be the worst thing ever that's happened in the world. It's hard to see that fulfilled in something that happened in 70 AD that you've probably never thought about before today. And so Jesus is beginning to to pivot and saying, tribulation is beginning there and it's kicked off with a massive, terrible event and it's going to continue and the end result will be it's the most terrible thing that has ever happened. There's no doubt the disciples believed that Jesus would return in their lifetime 
and they would have assumed that the destruction of Jerusalem would have been the thing to usher in Christ's return. For us, it seems kind of hard as we read through Matthew 24 and make the transition from verse 20 to verse 21 to see a 2,000-year parentheses pause that happens. That's, that's, that's tough to see. I'll remind you of 2 Peter 3.8. 2 Peter 3.8 is a great verse that says God does not look at time the same way that we do. Okay, so, so for some of you sci-fi tech fellas, to imagine a being that exists outside of time, who was and is and is to come, all right, there's some really mind-blowing stuff to consider. That, you know, the time of the pharaohs and today is all present to God. That's like next-level crazy stuff. But I'll tell you um, a joke that um, my grandfather told me, and uh, it's a corny grandpa joke. But I love it, and I think it's appropriate at this time. It says that for God, in Second Peter 3, a thousand years is like a day, or like an hour, maybe. I don't know what it says specifically. So my grandfather told me about a guy who asked God a question. and said, God, you own the cattle on a thousand hills. You own everything. What is a million dollars like to you? And God said, oh, a million dollars is just like a penny to me. Well, God, what is a million years like to you? Well, you know, a million years is just like a second. The guy goes, hey, God, can I borrow a penny? And God God goes, sure thing, just a second. (laughs) When When we talk about the end times, it is admittedly very difficult for us to think about chronology. It's difficult. Because we are time-bound creatures, and at best, let's say we average 70 years, we're a blip on the radar of what happens in world history. And so for us to assume things and to be so pompous to think that we've got it all figured out, every generation has figured that they have, have, has figured that they have it all kind of figured out. We need to be careful in our interpretation and try to be as true to the Scriptures as possible. He says that what will happen in this end times persecution will be so terrible that if he didn't cut it short, that everyone would die. And admittedly, in a century that is seen, World War I, World War II, the creation of nuclear weapons, the proliferation of terrorism, and more martyrs in our century than in all 19 centuries previously combined. Did you catch that? There are more Christians that have died in the last 100 years than the previous 1900 years added together. It's not getting easier. It's getting harder. Jesus' prediction is not far-fetched. If he did not cut the time short, no one would survive. Now, that doesn't mean that our days are unrelentingly evil. As a matter of fact, we can actually have some good days. Be grateful to the grace of God for this. But it does mean that there is this opposition to the priorities of God in the rejection of his message. If you believe that the only people who are saved are saved because they have personally repented of their sins and placed their faith in Christ, you will continually and increasingly be called a narrow-minded, hateful, bigot, and probably some other words that we're not allowed to say in church. But that is the testimony, that there is no one saved apart from the name of Christ. And for us to affirm the truth of the Scriptures will cause us to be hated. Christian claims will increasingly be met with more opposition and they will elicit irrational hostility. Some of you have maybe even experienced that. When you talk about your views on ethics or morality and people just think you're nuts. 
Well, in verses 23 through 26, as he begins to talk about this great deception that will happen in the future, he describes the tricks of the tricksters in verses 23 through 26. Listen to what it says. If anyone tells you then, then, meaning in the future, look, here is the Messiah, or over here, do not believe it. False messiahs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Take note, I have told you in advance. So if they tell you, look, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. Look, he's in the inner rooms. Do not believe it. Three things about their tricks that are astounding. Number one, their deception will be blatantly Christ-centered. Is there any denial of who Jesus Christ is in their in this passage. No. They assume who Jesus is. They're just trying to deceive people to believe that he's already come. That, by, by way of fact, friends, is the error of uh, Jehovah's... One of the errors among many among Jehovah's Witnesses. They believe that Jesus showed up in America in 1914 and just nobody knew about it. Jesus came back secretly to a small group. That's not how the Bible depicts his return. But they are not denying the deity of Christ. They're not denying the humanity of Christ. They're not denying the atonement of Christ. They assume that we're all on the same page about Christ. They're just going to deceive us. Jesus has already come back. He's in the wilderness. He's in the inner room. He's over here. He's over there. And friends, that just means we have got to know our word well. Because there will be the assumption that Christians are gullible enough that when you see these guys teaching false doctrine, and performing signs and wonders that we're going to be gullible enough to believe it. Number two, uh, I've already mentioned this, false teachers won't be wimps, they'll be wonder workers. False teachers won't be wimps, they'll be wonder workers. It says they will perform great signs and wonders. And here's the thing, there's going to be people in our churches that go, ooh, hold on, what they're saying, uh, yeah, that doesn't seem to match up. And, And their antenna will start to quiver a little bit, and they go, something doesn't sound right. You know, we need to figure out what's going on. But then they'll see these false teachers perform signs and wonders. And they'll go, huh, I don't know about their teaching, but the only way they could do what they're doing is if God was with them. So they got to be good people. they got to be good people. How in the world could they heal somebody? How in the world could they bring someone back from the dead? How in the world could they speak forth the truth or say something about my life that nobody knows? They won't be dead on the vine as we think false teachers will be. They will be abundantly fruitful because the Bible says they won't just deceive a few, they will deceive many. They'll be so successful that the Bible says they would even seek to deceive God's elect if that were even theoretically possible. So in verse 23 and 24, he kind of lays out a theoretical thing. Hey, if they say this, don't believe it. Verse 25, he says, I'm telling you in advance. So when this happens, you can't say, oh, this is kind of novel. How unexpected. Why didn't Jesus warn us? He has. He said, there will be false teachers and they will work signs and wonders and you had better know your word well enough to not respond to it. In verse 26, he says, so when it happens, 23, 24, theoretical, 25, I've told you so, 26, all right, so when it happens. And he he does something interesting. In verse 24, he says, uh, when you hear him say, look, here he is, or over here, he says, do not believe it. Verse 26, so if they tell you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. Verse 24, don't believe it. Verse 26, don't even investigate their truth claims. He said, don't don't just not believe it and say, well, I don't believe it, but I'm going to come over here to the wilderness and I'm going to see for myself. He goes, don't even go out. Why would you even begin to walk in the path of the wicked? 
Why would you even put yourself in a place to be tempted to believe something that you know doesn't accord with what the scripture says is true? And so he says, people might not like their teaching, but when they see them performing wonders, there'll be a temptation to believe them. D.A. Carson says this about our gullibility as Christians. Empty-headed credulity is as great an enemy of the faith as chronic skepticism. Empty-headed credulity that believes anything is as bad an enemy to the faith as someone who's a chronic skeptic, an atheist. We all think that atheism is the greatest challenge to the Christian faith. No, it's not. It's gullibility. An empty-headed, I'll believe whatever anybody tells me, is as much an enemy of the faith as chronic skepticism. Number three, and this is encouraging when he describes the tricks of the false teachers, no one will miss the return of Christ. No one will miss the return of Christ. Oh, he's in the wilderness. He's in the inner room. He's hiding over here. He's appeared to a small group of secret disciples. That's not what the scripture says. Verse 27 and 28. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the carcass is, there the vultures will gather. That's a life verse for you. Wherever the carcass is, there the vultures will gather. He's saying that no one will miss it. It will be like the flashing of lightning. And we may be tempted to think that we'll miss out on the return of Christ because the very first time he came, the vast majority of humanity missed out on it because Jesus came very humbly. He came very quietly. And according to our nativity sets, there were only three shepherds that actually got to see what happened. It was not witnessed by many, but his second coming won't be so demure. His second coming won't be so private. It won't be so secluded. It won't be so secret. I want you to listen to this. On the screen, you're going to see um, uh, Article 10 of the Baptist Faith and Message, which is our doctrinal statement as a church that says what we believe about the last things. And it's amazing for what it doesn't say, but it is awesome for what it does say. It says this, God in his own time and in his own way will bring the world to its appropriate end. According to his promise, Jesus Christ will return personally and visibly in glory to the earth. The dead will be raised and Christ will judge all men in righteousness. The unrighteous will be consigned to hell, the place of everlasting punishment. The righteous in their resurrected and glorified bodies will receive their reward and will dwell forever in heaven with the Lord. Jesus will not come secretly to a small group and he will not come in a fashion that is hidden from public rather his appearing will be like a bolt of lightning in the sky that is visible for all to see it will be sudden it will be obvious it will be dramatic it will be public it will be glorious it will be unquestionable and it will be clearly visible to all as a matter of fact it concludes by saying just as vultures are drawn to a dead body and there are obvious signs in the sky, so will all men be attracted and see the return of Christ. Here's the challenge for you. In a passage that is very difficult, I I have never heard a sermon preached on Matthew 24. You have now. You may not have before. Is you can get lost in the weeds of trying to figure out the four beasts and the ten horns and the bears from the north. And there, you'll, listen, go walk into a so-called Christian bookstore and there'll be a lot of fiction to keep you entertained for many years to come. There are things about the end times that we do not know. Don't let those bother you. 
be bothered by what you do know. That the Bible says that he is coming back and that we have a responsibility. While there may be things about the end times that are not clear, our responsibilities are that we are to be prepared and that we are to share. So don't allow your questions about what the Bible's not going to answer clearly to distract you from the responsibilities that the Bible says ring crystal clear that you have a responsibility to be ready. And if you're in a family, you have a responsibility to get your family ready. And if you have friends at a workplace, you have a responsibility to get your coworkers ready. And if you live in a neighborhood, you have a responsibility to get your neighbors ready because you may be the only gospel book that they'll ever open up and read. Maybe that's why God has placed you exactly where he has placed you, to reach the people that no one else will have the opportunity to reach. Pray with me, please. Father, we admit the difficulty of this passage and the challenge for us to say, ooh, hardship, persecution, trouble, tribulation, I don't want any of that. But I pray that as we have seen your good and benevolent hand upon our lives in so many ways in the past, that you will make us not eager for hardship, but eager for faithfulness. And if the course that we have before us is difficult, that our God is so much greater that we will run with joy and endurance whatever the course that is set before us. Father, we don't know how it all works out, and you have not deemed to give us that knowledge. You have simply uh, given us the moral imperatives to live righteously for you, to testify to the grace of God in Christ, and to share the life-changing message of the gospel with those around us. So Father, I pray that you'll help us to take seriously those responsibilities. I pray today that if there are those that hear end times talk and they just wonder what their relationship is with God or they go, man, I used to be so much closer to God and I'm not now, that today could be a day of just glorious conversation about a God who is always willing to to receive those who come to him. Today could be a day of renewal, restoration. Today could be a day of salvation for people as we turn from our selfish ways to a God that loves us so much that he warns us about things that we can't even conceive of in the future. So Father, we pray that you will be beautiful enough to us that we will live the way that you ask us to and that we will share the way that you ask us to as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.